While I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Some of you remember when Jesus was telling his stories about the kingdom, which we affectionately call parables in Matthew chapter 13, that one of those stories was about a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And it grew, it grew rapidly and it grew large, larger than any of the others. In fact, Jesus said it became a tree. And the birds of the air came and lodged or took shelter in that tree. Now on the heels of that parable, Jesus followed it with another parable similar to the first. He said, there was a woman who took some leaven and she put the leaven or the yeast in three measures of meal that she was cooking. And eventually all three of those measures of meal, the loaves of bread, were leavened completely. What Jesus was speaking about, I am certain, is not that the world would all get saved, but that the kingdom of God would experience rapid growth. The church of Jesus Christ would experience abnormally rapid, pervasive growth, but in the midst of that growth, evil and corruption would lodge in the church. That's what leaven is all about. Leaven throughout the scripture is an idiom of evil. He predicted that evil and corruption would be housed by the church that he came to build. The birds of the air that lodge within the nesting of the tree is also idiomatic of evil continuously throughout the scripture. So when you consider that, Jesus made a frightening prediction. And of course, Paul the Apostle, in the same spirit of his master Jesus, made many predictions of like nature. He said, the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine, but they will heap to themselves teachers because they have itching ears and they will turn away their hearts from the truth. He said, many will depart from the faith. That's frightening. Many will depart from the faith and give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines taught by devils. And then we remember that penetrating question that Jesus asked, when the Son of Man returns, will he find the faith upon the earth? Peter, one of the apostles of Jesus, was experiencing a time of great falling away when he wrote his first and second letters called First and Second Peter. And he spoke about false teachers already entrenching the church at that time. And he said, false teachers who bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. Jesus' predictions, Paul's predictions and Peter's predictions were coming true at that time, and they have come true historically and are still coming true at this point. Hence, the need to understand the epistle of Jude very well. We're living in frightening times. We're living in times when these predictions have come to pass, and we must be equipped with the truth. As we read here in verse 3, the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. In the year 328, Constantine 
defeated Licinius at the Milvian Bridge up in northern Italy. He promised that if he would win the battle, that he would turn everybody in the Roman Empire into Christians. And he won. And so he decided to keep his promise and set Christ upon the throne of the Caesars, according to his own words. He thought everybody should be a Christian. Well, what eventually happened was a corruption took place within the church because people were forced to be Christians, not given the choice, because the priests of the pagan Roman temples, their jobs were on the line because they were being paid by the Roman government. So they decided instead of being pagan priests, that they would become Roman priests in this new Christian religion. And all of a sudden, a Roman priesthood started developing. Where instead of people going to the priests of the pagan temples, they would go to the priests of the Christian churches for forgiveness of sins, for absolution from guilt. And because people were forced into it, there wasn't a heart conversion. You can see the kind of pervasive corruption. The mustard seed grown into a large branch and all sorts of evil creatures started lodging within its branches. The leaven that was put within the meal started leavening the entire lump. Ever since the early church, she has had to battle heresy and apostasy, that falling away from the faith. And the book of Jude, that's why we've chosen Jude on Thursday nights for the next several weeks, It's because it is the only book in the Bible devoted entirely to standing up against apostasy. Though it's short, it's got 25 verses. It is packed with principles that we can learn. It's the only book entirely devoted to standing up against heresy and apostasy, and that's why it's so relevant for us tonight. By the way, The Bible depicts apostasy in the last days. We don't have to wait for it, folks. It is here. I personally believe we are in the last page. The page of human history has turned and we're in the last chapter. For a number of reasons, notwithstanding the apostasy as predicted in the Scripture. We're here. There are several notations. We could come up with lots of examples about this. Let's take a couple. Our nation, when it was founded, decided to make schools devoted to raising up men and women to carry the gospel into all the world, to train men in the ministry to evangelize all of the East Coast. They were known as the Ivy League schools, Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, Amherst, and the list goes on, devoted to training up ministers. You would be hard-pressed to find the kind of devoted evangelical Christians that they used to have. Harvard School was originally a divinity school, and Harvard Law School was started by one by the name of Simon Greenleaf, one of the greatest defenders of the Christian faith historically, one of the most brilliant men who ever lived, started Harvard Law School. In fact, John Harvard when he started this school, said, quote, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main ends of his life and studies, to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all knowledge and all learning. 
Did you know that in the 17th century, 52% of all Harvard graduates went into the ministry? Compare that to this. McCall's Magazine did a recent survey of 3,000 Protestant ministers. Quote, A considerable number of them have rejected altogether the idea of a personal God. God, they said, was the ground of being, the force of life, the principle of love. A majority of the youngest in this group cannot be said to even believe in the virgin birth or regard Jesus Christ as divine in the traditional sense the way most Protestants were brought up. I even found a newspaper article that went so far as to say, quote, Sadie, a Labrador retriever belonging to Charles Thurber family in Tierra Linda, California, was ordained as a minister of the faith by Hilltop House Church in San Rafael. Now, I knew that the ministry was going to the dogs, but I didn't know it had gone that far. We're seeing the apostasy to the extreme, ad infinitum, ad nauseum, that was predicted by Jesus, Paul, and Peter in the New Testament. The method of Jude in this book about apostasy is that he'll go back using examples of apostasy from the very beginning of man's history. From Cain, during the time of Enoch, the angels who did not keep their first estate but left their proper domain and were judged by God. And so we'll see how that applies to us today and people today. In verse 9, speaks about Michael the archangel contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses. In verse 11, we have the example of the way of Cain and the rebellion of Korah. And so he'll trace apostasy since the beginning of man and show its development. I said that I believe we're in the last stage of history. I really mean that. I find the elections this year the most interesting election year that I can ever remember, or actually one of the most pivotal that probably in American history. We're living in interesting political times. No one trusts anyone, not just republic, anyone. And we have an interesting international scene going on. The whole idea of the Soviet Union breaking up And the five southern states, Kazakhstan, of which is the fourth largest holder of nuclear weapons in the world, is entirely Muslim and wants to align with Iran and Syria to push the West out of the Middle East and control Jerusalem. You have a perfect biblical scenario being set up before your very eyes and you have apostasy from the true faith right before your eyes. So it's time for the church to wake up and smell the apostasy (laughs) and not to deny it anymore and not to pat everybody on the back and say, they mean well, let them go their way. The time is at hand. And so we are warned, and I think this is very, very applicable. It's an actual, actually a, uh, a brilliant strategy of the enemy, and it's one that you've heard of. It's not a new strategy. It's old. And it's still used. The strategy goes like this. If you can't beat them, join them. 
Satan tried to beat the church in the first several years of its existence through persecution. What happened? Every time they were persecuted, they grew bigger. He couldn't put out the fire of the church. Every time he stomped his foot on the flame, little sparks went out and started other fires. So he thought, this isn't getting me anywhere. Wherever there's persecution, they keep growing. China, case in point, in modern times. So join them, corrupt them from within by false doctrine, by apostasy, by apathy, by heresy. And it's been something he's kept up ever since. Verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. Now what happened is that Jude sat down to write a letter of encouragement about the common salvation. And uh, I'm sure he was thinking of all sorts of topics he could write in his little letter to encourage Christians. I love to encourage. I hate to contend. No one likes to fight or to argue. Well, I shouldn't say no one. There are some people who really like to do that, and they really shouldn't be sharing the gospel until their hearts are changed. But I find it... Not a fun job to to be in a place of contending. And he said, I sat down to write this encouraging letter, letter of encouragement, to speak about our common salvation. I like that term. Our common salvation. Of all the things we don't have in common tonight, of all of the differences that we possess, and there are many, there's one thing we have in common, and that's salvation. Most of you are here tonight because you're saved, and we share the fellowship of salvation. And what I like is that there aren't too many things that would naturally draw us together. But the one thing that has drawn us together is the essential. The rest is really non-essential. You're a sinner saved by grace and so am I. We have that in common. Though it is human nature to repel others who are not like us. Have you noticed that? That is human nature. We like to go into groups of people that are our age, our color, our economic background, do things that we like to do. It's hard to get singles with married couples. Singles like to just hang out with singles sometimes. And married couples with married couples and older people with older people. It goes on in and out the church. But the thing that draws us together is the common bonds of salvation which transcends any other barrier. There's that great leveler, the cross of Jesus Christ that brings men and women from different backgrounds together. The common salvation. It's common because anybody can come. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus said, if anyone will open the door, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. Jesus said, whosoever wills, let him come. He said, if anyone come to me, I will in no wise cast out anyone. God is no respecter of persons. The free gift, Romans says, is given to all those who will receive him. It's a free gift of salvation. So, I was very diligent. I sat down diligently writing to you about the common faith. But something happens to him. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which is once for all delivered to the saints. Literally, it could be translated, I had a necessity It's the same word that Paul used in Acts chapter 17. Christ needed to suffer and rise again from the dead. 
the same word here. I needed to write this to you. I was compelled, no doubt, by the Holy Spirit. Here's the scenario as I see. He took his quill. He took his whatever he was writing on, and he sat down. He said, Lord, I want to write a great letter of encouragement to these Christians. And as he was doing it, the Holy Spirit pressed him. That's what the word originally means, to be pressed or pressured and detoured into doing something else. I was pressured by the Holy Spirit to write to you, exhorting you. Not a letter of encouragement as much as a letter of exhortation to compel you toward a behavior, to defend the faith or contend earnestly for the faith. Have you ever been pressured by the Holy Spirit? Have you ever stood in line like at a grocery store? You're minding your own business. You're looking at People magazine. You're looking at the gum. Should I buy the gum? No, I'll buy the breath mints. I'll forget it. I don't need it. And all of a sudden, there's somebody in front of you. And the Holy Spirit says, talk to them. And it's plain to your heart. But you look around to see if somebody else is talking or if God was talking to some other person. But you're the only one in line besides that person. You go, who, me? Yeah, go talk to, they need just strike up a conversation. And you know what it's like when the Holy Spirit pressures you to share in love the common salvation. Well, there's Jude, ready to write an encouraging letter, pressured, detoured by the Holy Spirit, finding it necessary to exhort. The word exhort is the word parakaleo. Same word as the Holy Spirit. Paraclete, one called alongside to help. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you, pushing you along, being a help alongside of you so that you would come to a place where you would see how important it is to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I would like to read a few different translations so that you get the gist of this verse. It's so important. It should be a verse, by the way, that you should commit to memory. It's one of those verses that you should diligently commit to memory. Let me read it to you, first of all, in the 20th century New Testament version that you, quote, would fight in defense of the faith. I'm exhorting you that you would fight in defense for the faith. Another version says, put up a good fight for the faith. The New English Bible, quote, I appeal to you to struggle in the defense of the faith. The Greek word is epagonizai ethai, which means to agonize and struggle to uphold. That's where we get the word agony, to agonize. The best translation of this verse that I have found in all of the translations I was digging through today is from Kenneth Wiest, a Greek scholar, one of the best in our time, and he has taken and expanded the Greek New Testament. Quote, divinely loved ones, listen carefully, when giving all diligence to be writing to you concerning the salvation possessed in common by all of us, I had constraint laid upon me to write to you beseeching you to contend with intensity and determination for the faith once for all entrusted into the safe keeping of the saints. Now let's be honest. We don't view Christians as contenders for anything. Some people view Christians as just, you know, lovey-dovey, um, sloppy agape, I call it. Because true love will tell the truth. In love, but it will tell the truth. Listen to Jesus speaking. He was incarnate love, wasn't he? 
Did Jesus ever not love somebody? Was Jesus ever acting in a way that was not loving? No, he was love incarnate. Listen to love incarnate speak, quote, You brood of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? You are whited sepulchers, clean on the outside, full of dead men's bones and all corruption in the inside. Was he speaking in love? You'd be bound to say yes from what you know of him. To the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, and his works you do. Yet Jesus was speaking in love because of the condition of their heart demanded a stern rebuke. To contend is not as strong as rebuke, but it does mean to put up a good fight for the faith. To defend the faith, as we call it, or apologetics, as we sometimes call it. Peter wrote a letter and he said that we ought to be able to give to every man an answer when he asks us for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and meekness, but giving to them an answer. The question arises, what is the faith? What is the faith? He said, I sent out to write a letter about our common salvation, but there was this necessity this compulsion, this pressure. God, the Holy Spirit was poking at my heart to write to you, exhorting you, prodding you toward action, to defend the faith and to contend earnestly for the faith. What is the faith? That's something we actually want to discuss more in depth next week. But briefly, this is what he was speaking about. The faith is the body of truth that we have here. All that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. The faith is the body of revelatory truth given to the New Testament church. That we uphold for all that pertains to life and godliness. We as Christians look to the Bible for answers so that we can guide our lives. That's the faith. There are divisions of the faith, who God is, who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, how a person is saved, what will happen to a person in all of eternity, who angels are, the doctrines of last things. That all comprises the faith. But basically, it's the body of New Testament truth. It is sometimes called sound doctrine or the doctrine in the New Testament. It's sometimes called the Apostles' Doctrine, Acts 2.42. They continued steadfastly. In the Apostles' Doctrine number 1, fellowship, breaking bread and prayers, and the Lord added daily to the church those who were being saved. The Apostles' Doctrine, the faith. In the New Testament we read, examine yourselves whether you are in the faith. So Christians are called to take an inventory of their lives. Am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? Are there the fruits of the Spirit? Examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. So you must judge yourself so that you'll be free of the judgment of the wrath of God to come in the future. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. And then Paul wrote to Timothy and says, The Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith. So you are called as a Christian, now listen carefully, to contend, to intensely stand up for this book, the faith, the body of New Testament revelation, the body of truth in the Scripture, to put up a good fight for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You're called to know it so that you can stand up against it. I am concerned in that regard. 
I'm concerned about some Christians who will naively say things like, doctrine isn't important, brother. Oh, it's not? No, we're not into doctrine. Well, what is important? Jesus. Really? How'd you learn about him? It's in the Bible. Well, that's doctrine. The word doctrine means right teaching. It's exactly what it means. Right teaching, correct beliefs. So when a person says, I don't believe in doctrine, it's not important. You're saying good teaching, biblical truth is completely not important. There is this idea that you can get by on all zeal and no knowledge. And Paul warned about the Jews who were high on zeal but short on facts. They have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. There is in this country, in proportion to the amount of resources, biblical resources, there is an amazing level of ignorance among American Christians as to what truth really is. And what the gospel really is. What salvation really means. Who God really is. We are left to, well, my opinion is, and I've kind of thought God as, rather than this is that which was spoken of by the prophets, like Peter said. Though we have radio programs and bookstores everywhere and access to truth, It seems like to some that is not important. It's on a low, low level. And what is happening, I see it, with this apostasy coming upon us, is exactly what Paul the Apostle said should never happen. That is, that you no longer be children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness in which they lie in wait to deceive you. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews said. Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let's go on to perfection, maturity. The writer of Hebrews, I believe, is Paul the Apostle. And he's saying... By now, you should be teaching spiritual calculus and you're learning your ABCs. You're singing the song, A, B, C, D, and you're, you're so excited that you can sing that song. But you're 45 years old singing A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You ought to be grown by now. So let's move on from the elementary principles. They're great, but let's go on to perfection, to maturity in Christ. How? By the faith. Again, and another scripture verse that I would recommend you commit to memory is 2 Peter, the first chapter, the first, second and third, actually down to verse 8. Commit that to memory. Where it says, we have all that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Who called us. So, beloved, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, but I found it necessary, I was in compulsion by the Holy Spirit, no doubt, to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. So, folks, we need to dismiss this idea that doctrine is wrong and begin to learn it, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, of Jesus. If you're unsure... 
There's plenty of resources to be sure. There's good books. There's this book. There's no better text for truth. Jesus said, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. You might want to take, if you're a little bit skittish and you think, hey, I'm not a theologian. Well, I'm not either. You might want to take the new believers class or the foundations class to build yourself up on the most holy faith so that you have something then to examine yourself with. Or you might want to take our biblical counseling foundation courses which will disciple you to know the truths of God's Word, to apply it to your lives and the lives of others. I'd like to give to you a quote by Dr. C.S. Lovett, great scholar, who said, quote, Many Christians, ignorant of what redemption really means, are easily moved by the teachings of the false cults. Unless believers have clear insight into God's plan for saving men and how the Spirit works to deliver us from sin, they can be trapped by the arguments of these cult workers. Happens all the time. Happens all the time. Because in the last days, they will not endure sound doctrine. They'll be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. It's a new doctrine. Hey, great. Go after it. Now, let me ask us a question. Why is it necessary to contend? Because some of us are still a little bit skittish about the idea of contending for the faith, putting a good fight for the faith. Why is it necessary to contend? Simply this. We are challenged by people and by religious groups constantly. We meaning Christians, evangelical Christians, people who love Jesus, born again. You are challenged constantly by religious groups any time you affirm your faith in Christ. You're challenged by a host of groups out there who are waiting to attack you. They say, number one, that Christianity is compatible with every other religion on earth. It doesn't matter which brand of cereal, spiritually speaking, you eat. It's all the same. All roads lead to God. And so this is compatible with everything. Therefore, you should not be too quick to speak of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ separate from anyone else. His unique, distinct claims to be God. To be the only way, the only truth, the only life. People don't like that when you say, only Jesus saves. They get very angry at that. That's too narrow for them. And they're right. You can't get any narrower. Jesus even said, narrow is the way which leads to eternal life, and very few find it. Broad is the path, and wide is the way that leads to eternal destruction, and many enter therein. It's very narrow. People don't like it. Therefore, they widen the road. Who likes narrow roads? Make it a freeway. Twelve lanes, man. Forget the orange cones. Just make it wide. Everybody's traveling down the same road to God, just different lanes. And maybe you want to change lanes a little bit and get into a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And so they say it's compatible. Or number two, and the cultist will do this, the New Age will say the first one, the cultist will say, you're wrong You as Christians have always been wrong, historically, and we're here to give you the real truth, which has just been revealed to me. No one else, me, us. And so we're going to enlighten you with our new truth, our new knowledge, our new books that have been written, the Book of Mormon, Doctrines and Covenant, the Pearl of Great Price, the Watchtower Magazine. You can go down the list. It's a long list, and we'll discuss more of that list next week. You've got to realize something. 
before we go on. When we talk about the defense of the faith, contending earnestly for the faith, we are not on the attacking end. You've got to get that clear before you begin. We are not on the attacking end. We're on the defensive end. It was the cultists, it was the New Age, who came and attacked historic Christianity at its roots from the beginning. Ours is a response, an apologia, a contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We're not on the attacking end, we're on the defense end. That's what the word apologia means, to make a defense for the faith, contending earnestly for the faith. Now, one of the characteristics of any cult or aberrant religion is that they reject the truth of historic Christianity. And any time you get people coming up to you rejecting historic Christianity, what do you need to do? Contend earnestly for the faith. You need to know what the faith is and how to do it. Example, Helena Blavatsky, founder of the Theophysi, Theosophy Cult, said, quote, of Orthodox Christians, historic Christianity. The name has been used in a manner so intolerant and dogmatic, especially in our day, that Christianity is now the religion of arrogance par excellence, a stepping stone for ambition, a sinecure for wealth, shame, and power, a convenient screen for hypocrisy. Add to that the words of Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon Church, who said, actually, when he said this, he said this was revealed to him from heaven. Quote, I was answered... Let me give you the background. Joseph Smith was imploring heaven, asking God to help show him which of all the churches in his community he should join. Which church in America should he belong to? Here's his answer, quote. I was answered that I must join none of them. In other words, there's not one church in all of the country, in all of the world, that's right. I was answered, I must join none of them, for that they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that all of their creeds were an abomination in his sight. That those professors were all corrupt, for they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We need to contend for the faith because of statements like that. Because that's not the true faith. What he saw represented in certain churches and had his vision after spicy food, whatever exactly it was, was not representative of the true faith. There's lots of Christian activity that is not the true faith. You need to contend for the true faith, once for all delivered to the saints. Now, over in Ireland, there's Christian wars going on, the Catholics and the Protestants. Is that true Christianity? No, it's not. You need to contend for the real thing. Over in Lebanon, the Muslims are fighting the quote-unquote Christian militia. Christian militia? Christian terrorists? That's antithetical. Is that the true faith? No, it's not. You need to contend earnestly for the true faith once for all delivered to the saints. Then we have the illustrious World Council of Churches in this country who said, quote, Christians cannot claim to have the truth. These are church leaders. The World Council of Churches sounds benign, huh? Sounds warming. The World Council, oh, I'd like to belong to that. Well, they said Christians can't claim to have the truth. And so we should put Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims on the chairs of the Christian universities and colleges. Folks, you can tell when the sheep are in trouble. 
when the shepherd starts speaking kindly of the wolves. You know that the sheep are in bad, bad shape <laughs> and can be tossed to and fro. So it's come to pass, hasn't it? The church has grown into a large tree with many branches that are really not of the root. Have grown out, all with the name Christian, God this, Jesus that, and we need to know what the true faith is to contend earnestly for it. Now, as I said, next week we're going to be speaking about the basic, basic Bible doctrines in compare, so we know what the faith is, basically, in distinction to cults, a few of them, so that we know what the differences are. Is this just something superficial, we shouldn't worry about it, or is it indeed something we really need to worry about? But this evening, I want you to learn a word if you don't already know it. It's an important word. It's not a bad word. It's the word orthodox. We speak of orthodox Christianity. Orthodox comes from two words with a singular meaning that means the right belief or opinion. From the second century A.D., church leaders thought it was necessary to draw lines of distinction between orthodoxy, right beliefs, and heresy, opinions held in contradistinction to what the church always believed historically. That's what orthodoxy is. Heresy is something aberrant, is something that is in contradiction to what the church has believed is right from its early stages onward. And so they had councils. They would get together to discuss when Arius came up with his heresy that the Jehovah Witnesses still follow, why it was wrong and what was heretical and what was orthodox. Cults have always attacked the faith, orthodox Christianity, from its inception. Now, though we are called to contend earnestly for the faith, that doesn't give you the right to be contentious. That has to be underscored. Christians should not be obnoxious. They shouldn't go out there and go, I can't wait. I've learned so much about Jehovah Witnesses. I can't wait for that little knock on the door. I'll chew them alive. (laughs) No, no, no. You're to love them alive. You're to love them. Being confident enough in the truth so that you won't be intimidated by them and say, you're of the devil and close the door. You want to know the truth enough to share with them, but you want to share the truth in love. And so to contend for the faith doesn't give you the right to be contentious or arrogant or obnoxious. In fact, Peter wrote that classic phrase for apologetics that we all rely on, quote, but in your heart set Christ apart as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the hope that lies in you. But do this with gentleness and respect. Do it with gentleness and respect. No, we cannot let the accusations pass. We have to contend earnestly for the faith. Put up a good fight for the faith intensely sometimes. They must be answered, but we have to be careful. It is possible to disagree with someone who holds wrong views but to love the person who holds those same views. That's what we must do. Love them for the sake of Jesus Christ. Don't look at them as the enemy. The belief is the enemy. Now, 
a word of warning. You will be condemned as being unloving. You will be shot down as being insensitive. Anytime you mention anything by name, a person or a belief, they'll mistake your motive. They will think that you're out to get them. Make sure that you're not. And tell them, I'm not out to get you. I'm out to get what you believe. It's wrong. And you're ensnared by it. Make sure that you, with gentleness and respect, love the person. And always separate the person from the belief system that is holding them and capturing them. Is it sometimes necessary to name names? You betcha. Would you leave poison in the garage unmarked for your child to just guess at what it is? Now, you'd want a big skull and crossbones on there, wouldn't you? Poison. Stay away from it. Mark it. Name it. So that a person swallowing it wouldn't, won't die. Lest he swallow it and die. However, one of the most loving things to do is to tell people the truth. Though they'll mistake your motives. If you love them, tell them the truth. What if a person is driving a bicycle on a dirt road? He doesn't know that there's a thousand foot drop ahead. He's going so fast. He's on his mountain bike. You go, stop! You have to yell at him. You have to make sure it's firm. And you have to grab, stop! You'll die. How can you say that? You don't love me? That's not the point. Death awaits you. One of the most loving things you can do is to tell the truth because eternity is at stake. Martin Luther knew that in the Reformation. He was attacked. When he came against the Roman Catholic Church with 95 theses nailed to the Wittenberg door that sprang the Reformation, he said, quote, I am not permitted to let my love be so merciful as to tolerate and endure false doctrine. When faith and doctrine are concerned and endangered, neither love nor patience are in order. For a defective life does not destroy Christendom, but it exercises it. However, defective doctrine and false faith ruin everything. Therefore, when these are concerned, neither toleration nor mercy are in order, but only anger, dispute, and destruction, to be sure with only the word of God as our weapon. One final notation on this verse. I want you to notice, and it's just not a P.S., it's important to the text. It's once for all delivered to the saints. Several months ago, some Mormons came to our church. They came to the main Bible studies. I was thrilled to have them. So long as somebody was watching them after the services because they would always go to young believers and try to woo them away, talk to them. So we, we addressed them and said, No, we're not trying to do that at all. We just want to come and listen. Then you're welcome. Anytime. And they said, we'd like to sit down and talk with you. I said, I'd be honored. Let's do it. So they came into the office. And we had a wonderful time. And they spoke all about Joseph Smith and the revelation. And we spoke about the scripture. And they spoke about this. We had a great time. And as they were telling me all about the new revelation through Joseph Smith and the uh, books, Doctrines and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, and their importance and their substantiation uh, archaeologically, which they cannot prove to this date. They were telling me, this is from God, just as the Bible is from God. These also are from God as prophesied in the Old Testament. I said, now, okay, let's turn to Jude 3. Now, I want you to read it carefully. 
Beloved, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. I said, do you know when that book was written? He said, no. I said, by 70 A.D. that thing was completed. Which tells me by 70 A.D. everything that God wanted to say to us once for all delivered to the saints was delivered. There's no new books of the Bible being written. Unless you can show me that this was penned in the last 50 years, Jude 3, I've got nothing more to say. I said, can you read that and think that it means anything other than that? He said, well, i got to admit, I have trouble with that. Yeah. <laughs> Once for all, delivered to the saints. If it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. Does that discount the modern gift of prophecy, even in the Old Test, in the New Testament? Still you say, no, because if it's true prophecy, it will never contradict nor be new. It will reinforce. Once for all, delivered to the saints. So remember, there is a battle out there. It's not going to get any better. It's only going to grow more fiery. And we need to know how to contend earnestly for the faith. We'll discuss more about it next week. But for now, remember... This is the faith, what you have received, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's one of three persons of the Trinity, that he died for your sins, rose bodily from the grave, ascended bodily into heaven, will come back bodily to this earth, rule and reign forever. You need to know that. You need to know the faith, learn the faith, love the faith, share the faith. Don't keep the faith. They say, keep the faith. No, don't you dare keep the faith. Give it away. Share it with as many people as you can. And then contend earnestly for the faith. Once for all delivered. To you, the saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we make admission that we have limited understanding and that we are blind to the truth apart from a work of the Holy Spirit to enlighten. I remember the prayer of Paul to the Ephesians that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened that we might know the hope of the calling. Your inheritance in the saints and the glory that is to be revealed. Lord, in this brief sojourn upon the earth, an age of apostasy in which we live, of compromise, it is rare indeed to find those who will stand up for the historic Orthodox Christian faith and contend for it vigorously and earnestly, proclaiming, without being ashamed, that Jesus is the only way, truth, and the life, that men can be saved by no other means but through him. By your grace and strength, help us to contend without being contentious. To lovingly share the truth, but to share the truth nonetheless, all of it. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. And Lord, use our lives to not only stand against what is evil, but to lead those who are part of it into the kingdom. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen.